0: So welcome to today's call with Eric Serrano and Ian King, talking about training, going head to head on a few few issues of training and inviting important discussion with our listeners. So Eric, it's great to catch up with you recently in Canada.
1: Yeah, it was nice to see you after a long time. You're, um, you're looking older though, but you know, that's expected. Oh, you're so, <laughs>
0: you're so kind, my fellow,
1: friend. <laughs> <laughs>
0: okay. You're hasn't changed. you're still wearing those same floral wine shirts you did a decade ago.
1: Absolutely, I, I, I have to do that, it's a tradition, because people respect them now. Uh, <clears throat> too
0: close to the coast in your upbringing. So Eric, for those few people on the planet that aren't familiar with you, and there's only few people on the planet, can you give us a 30 second bio?
1: Um, absolutely, I'm a medical doctor. Um, I started as any other medical doctor training, uh, being ignorant about the truth and, and lies of medical school, of course. And through the years, I, I learned that most of the stuff that I, that I learned in medical school was wrong. And I started seeing patients, and I changed my ways because actually the, the patients were teaching me much more than I knew. And I learned more from my failures and my success. I want to say something to all the listeners. Um, I have dealt with many people in my lifetime, and I have worked with strength coaches. I have worked with all kinds of athletes in my lifetime. And I want to say this to all the people listening. I want you to understand that a lot of the things that I have learned, I have used in my practice. Ian King has been one of my biggest influences in my career. And I say that. I'm very proud that I am going to say that I have learned, the quantity and the amount that I have learned from Ian has been absolutely undeniable. And, um, and I know this is not to sell anything for anybody, and I think people ask me, which one is Ian's best book? And I'm going to tell you, he wrote a book in Plyometrics that I think is, it should be named uh, Plyometrics for the Retard, because it is an amazing book. It's perfect, slow, but at the same time packed with information, and everybody should have this book on on your library. But besides that, I do a lot of uh, functional, what it's called functional medicine now. I will say I call it the correct medicine. I don't call it functional. I deal with, um, like I said, all kind of athletes that I competed a few years, um, and I did really well, and now I teach and see patients.
0: I appreciate that, Eric. So, very briefly, with Eric, um, I've met a lot of people uh, during my journeys and in and out of the U.S. In, in excess of 50 times in the last 26 years, and I've got to meet a lot of great people, and very, very few that I put on the list is being as being as generous and as a giving person and as an intelligent person as Eric Serrano, and it's been a great relationship. I've been able to receive assistance from Eric for many aspects, uh, both in medicine and training for myself and my family and, and my clients, so I've really been a very very blessed to have Eric as a friend, and we need more Eric Serrano in the industry. So just very briefly, for, for the, there's more people on the planet that don't know who I am, and that's okay because I'm not a marketer per se, I'm just a coach setting out to help people. Uh, back there in 1980, I set out on a little bit of a journey, and I didn't didn't... Set out to do it. Any, any other reason as to fight other than to find the answers for myself. And along the way, athletes said, "I like what you're doing. Can you help me?" So by the mid '80s, I had in excess of 100 elite athletes uh, competing at international level. So I thought I'd better turn this into a business because it looked like a lot of people want, want my help. And along the way, I developed a lot of techniques, a lot of uh, innovations, a lot of concepts that. That I developed because they worked and they helped people. And this was in the in the time before there was much literature or there's very little publications in the area of training in the 1980s. And many of my concepts were developed in, in a period where there was a, a void of information. So I wasn't prejudiced by the information as I suggest people post 2000 have been. And I, I published a, a, quite a few of those 1980s concepts in the late 1990s, uh, and they still have some impact today, although uh, often misinterpreted. Now, we've developed a lot more since then and um, opportunities like this to, to share some of those thoughts. So I developed a, a series, a, a 10-part video series to, to share my message that the, you know, people around the world are experiencing musculoskeletal injuries that are far in excess of any reason other than they're being caused by the way they train. And I came to that conclusion over many decades by watching the increased involvement in training and watching the, the concurrent increased incident and severity in injuries. So whilst I have no statistics for you, I don't have any control studies for you, it's my observation, my my, my conclusion that most training does more damage than good, and it's a statement I made in the 1990s, and it, it's only gone on to epidemic levels. I'm seeing children uh, being damaged, and I'm seeing quality of life being impacted so much that I think it's time we 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 stood up and, and made a bit of a stand on that. So I, I issued a 10-part a video series uh, titled Zero Tolerance to Training, and I shared that with Eric in the first instance. And Eric had a few comments about that so i thought we'd we'd turn initially that today's discussion a little bit of an exchange on eric because i know he had a few things there that he liked and a few things there he didn't like and then we got a few questions pre-submitted by by our audience and if we have time then we'll take a few questions um, randomly from the audience so eric what were some of the things
1: that that you thought were pertinent and valuable okay video series? first of all i want to say that um Ian was uh, nice enough to send me the videos. So I have a little advantage over Ian because of course he sent me that and I, I did look at them. So I'm going to um, turn it into an argument though because I want to do it that way make it more interesting. Um, and the reason I, uh, we're having this conversation is because Ian spoke about stretching and other techniques and uh, he's very specific about certain things and I make some comments on my emails and that's why we're here. Now, um, I want to go really fast to what I believe because I'm sure most of the listeners have seen your tapes. Uh, Ian says that stretching should be one-to-one sometimes or spend at least an hour and a half uh, on stretching. Okay, And I want to tell the listeners I do believe on stretching. I, I, I think stretching has a place for different reasons, I think one of them will be for rehab, one of them be used as a warm-up, some people do it, also as training, like people have to do gymnastics, uh, stretching has to be part of their training because what they do. Uh, Now one thing that I have to disagree with with Ian is that he said we should stretch before you know the workouts and I I don't agree with that because uh, Do through the years of working with different teams and being called. A lot of times, people are being stretched before the workouts, and, and I'm going to try to explain this without able to visualize what what I want to explain. But I'm going to try. For example, if somebody hurts their hip, okay, and the range of motion is limited, okay, I go to the cases, and here is the therapist or the trainer stretching this guy's hip, and uh, initially. This guy had a 20-degree range of motion, and that's because the body wants to actually protect that hip. It's, it's stable within that range of motion, but once I increase that range of motion over those 20 degrees, yes, I get, oh, I feel great. I have, I got great range of motion. Then the athlete goes out there and runs, and of course he gets hurt because the, the reason that the joint capsule or the person was tight it was because at that moment in time there was some kind of imbalance or injury. Of course, I am being specific and Ian was generalizing the stretching component. Now I also uh, want to say that I have a different belief because there are a few things that when you stretch. Most people say, oh I stretch, so I stretch my muscles and in reality there is the muscles and there is the fascia. and both of them are stretch, but both of them require different things, and I want to separate those. For example, there is PNF, there is dynamic stretching, there is static stretching, okay? All those things are out there, uh, and I do not believe in each, on each one, but I believe in all of them. Now, my stretching is a little bit different than most people. For example, if I want to stretch your hamstrings, yes, I make you flex your hip, right? 90 degrees and you stretch it. Well, I believe that I put the hip in that position 90 degrees and once I get to, and once I get to that position, then I'm going to make my quad completely contract. I'm forcing myself to go beyond that range of motion with my own muscle and that is a little different than PNF. PNF you push away. On my stretching I make you contract that opposite muscle past that range of motion, and I get better results quicker. And I, I don't know if Ian has ever done that, but that's what I do. Um, I also believe that stretching is dependent on age, sex, injury, and activity levels or what the patient is doing. Uh, most of the time that I also see a person that has stretching needs, and this is, I agree here with Ian, is because poor training. And, uh, and I want to I, I throw another word out there pandiculation. You know, most people think that, oh, look at the animals, they stretch when they get up, Oh, look at the lion, or oh, look at the cat, right? But this is the problem though, if I'm going to, if I'm walking and somebody's going to sh- shoot me, I'm not going to freaking stretch, I'm going to roll like a, like this fire of my ass, you know, I'm going to take off. Also, you know, I'm not going to warm up, I'm not going to stretch, I just have to take off. Of course, that's a, a different uh, situation but I want my body to be ready for that. So to prevent that situation from me getting hurt, and like Ian is talking about the race between two bodybuilders, and by the way, Ian, you're correct. I had never seen a balanced bodybuilder in my life yet. I never met him. And I have a lot of those. The closest i ever seen to a balance is John Meadows, and still he's not balanced. But, I mean, uh, those are my viewpoints on stretching. So... And I know you're here, so yeah, let's hear your side.
0: Well, it's great, great that we can have this exchange, Eric, because uh, I, I don't believe either of us have our values threatened whatsoever. I actually don't have any attachment to anything. Uh, my attitude is pretty much this: if a person has an outcome and they're happy with that outcome, then I say, fantastic, keep going. If a person has an outcome and they're not happy with an outcome and they're looking for a better way, then I say, well, let's look for a better way. And that probably sums up my approach to training, because there's a lot of ways to get to Rome and everybody chooses their own path, and their path is influenced by so many factors. Now, let's take a moment to look at the path of many at the moment. If we arrived on a deserted island from another planet with no pre predetermined influences, we might come to obje- objective conclusions. But what I believe is where many are, including um, some of Eric's influences, are a subject of the dominant trends of thinking that have occurred uh, from about 1995. There was the, the first anti-stretch wave came through and then there's probably about three variations since then. And anybody the influenced by that period of time has, has exchanged it in the, in the, in the way that I, the forensic police look at the exchange of materials and when two items come in contact with each other, each leaves particles of, the, of, of themselves on the other. And it's very difficult for people to, to not get absorbed or not absorb part of the dominant beliefs. And I believe that some of those dominant beliefs have been perhaps one of the major reasons why we're having an epidemic of injuries. The, the anti-stretch movement has been pretty serious in its negative impact on the world. So uh, for me, the, the concept of, of, of ignoring the need to return connective tissue to length, uh, whether it's length or tension, uh, is, is an absolute massive flaw in training. And... This is – and I'll get a little bit more specific. If an athlete's movements is out of a powerlifter, like walking up the stairs is their definition of exerting themselves because they can't find the escalator, and I'm down with that, then they're not going to find the impact of their, their limitations as early. But when other athletes, like running sport athletes and moving sport athletes, adopt that philosophy, then they find the limitations of their imbalances a like further. And I'm not just talking about muscle imbalances. I'm talking about length and tension imbalances. And that's what I raised the – Rate of rate of risk onset, rate of injury onset concept during the Swiss presentation, where I said that you can have an imbalance as a as a walking athlete or or a reasonably static athlete that in a moving sport athlete will end up in an anterior cruciate reconstruction and etc etc. Et and what I'm seeing is the, the for example as the popularity of powerlifting rises and God bless the sport, the the athletes that are modeling that the strength coaches that are modeling their training are inducing injury incidences and severities and never seen before in the history of sport because the they've taken the whole philosophy, well, you know, the palliative doesn't stretch and he's not he's not rupturing his ACL, so I, I should be good. And it's not that simple. So there's some of the two mm-hmm. in, in summary, first of all the, mm-hmm. the influence of historical um, biases or trends. And secondly that the lack of understanding that what works for one person in one sport is not going to transfer to another uh, another sport, another athlete. Back to Eric.
1: I completely agree with you, Ian. Actually, I was one of those guys that you call a guru that can't touch his toes. And I'm laughing right now because I can barely bend over sometimes and touch my toes. Of course, I was also the same guy that I tore my pec, I tore my quad, I tore my Achilles tendon. Only the Achilles tendon I require surgery. And after I did it playing baseball, and and that was because I was tight and I had an imbalance. And I completely agree with you, Ian. You know, we take powerlifting, and you know, and, I, and like you said on your video, we we squat with our hips wide, and, and and that is because it's required. Now I'm gonna I'm gonna bring another point in. Uh, when you say, oh yeah, you're squatting and your feet is forward, your feet is you know off. Okay, Ian. In my office, I had the advantage of X-rays, and I was one of those guys that believe that oh your feet has to always be even, right? And, but what happened? There was people that I didn't matter what I tried. They wouldn't go even. So I, I, get x-rays and I found out that there are certain population out there. I would say about 30% of the population in which they have different anatomical hip junctions. And let me explain that, what I mean by that. There are some people that have short neck and long neck on the other one. Or they have a different angle on each hip on the way they are eat downslope. So I figure out after a long time that not everybody is the same, and I gotta be careful with my mentality of, oh yeah, you're it forward, you're it backward. No, you cannot do that. You know, but those people sometimes require to do it that way because they're hip difference anatomically or structural. So I want to bring that up, and I I don't know if you're familiar with that, Ian. Are you familiar with that?
0: Well, I think it's a great discussion. That the the, the the term we're talking about now is a term that, that that has lost its way, I think, in the in the misuse of the word functional. We're talking about structural versus functional in the in the analysis of permanency of changes in the body. So I, I also assess for that, Eric. I also assess for that. As you said, you do have the advantage of having to do it. But I I, I take a pretty open view in the absence of, of having the the imagery that you do. I take a very optimistic view that more is functional than is structural. Now, the definition, as I understand those two, just for the listeners, is that structural is something that's never going to change because that's the way you were born. And functional is something yes. that we can change, but, but you're, you're demonstrating certain characteristics at the moment which could be misinterpreted as structural.
1: Yes, that, that is correct. I just want to make sure that the listeners were clear on that because there are some people that can And I have some people, that, of course, I see the weird cases, and and I've been lucky enough to see weird stuff like Er Erlo danlos syndrome, that the person has severe, is super flexible, but they're not healthy. Or for example, people with uh, high levels of growth hormone, they're flexible sometimes, but their muscles are limited, you know, in the way they move. So there are different variants that that coaches have to know about, and I don't want them to go there and say, "Oh, Ian and Eric said we got to stretch." No, you got to be Every person is different. Every athlete is different. you got to always, the good trainers always, always fix the weaknesses first and then later work on their strength. If you don't fix the weakest link on the chain, the athlete is not going to get better. It doesn't matter how much stronger he is.
0: So I think we agree on the concept of individualization. But I've got one point I want to challenge on there's a lot of stories about athletes that are too flexible. My question is, are more athletes injured because they're, they're lacking or they're imbalanced or they're lacking in range or more athletes injured because they're too
1: flexible? Ooh, I'm going to be an Ian king now. I'm going to be a politician. Well, first of all, uh, injuries, they're not, it can be one bad technique in their training. It can be a bad trainer, of course. So I want to say that also, there are so many poor trainers out there, I see one every single day in my office. Severe poorly trained. So is it is it an injury because it's too much uh, flexibility? I'm going to say no. Is it an injury because it's tight? I don't think I'm going to say because it's lack of stretching. I think it's because there's a difference between tension and relaxation of the muscles. Like you call it um, contraction and relaxation. So I think... Um, have I seen more people that are injured because they are flexible uh, the only problem with that is when I see them in my office there's always something happened to them and they need to be fixed so they have a, a shortening of the muscle because they're protecting that side but most of the time I have to agree with you and I know you want to hear it yes they're usually very tight or very unflexible.
0: It's a generalization and I introduce the concept of length and tension and uh, they're associated but not correlated and it, it, it can be different uh, reasons why but at the end of the day for me and this is a statement i make 80 percent of tension is reduced through stretching and people spend 80 percent of their time on tension reducing activities like rolling which is great but it's not as effective in generally speaking and I'm generalization so what i'm saying is stretching is its role in tension reduction is 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 the biggest contributor of all modalities the second point i want to make is when a muscle is inappropriately firing and firing at the wrong time therefore they get a, a connective tissue injury as a result that is also a nerve inhibition. That's also a byproduct of length or tension, which, again, in my opinion, is is, is reduced or, or corrected more so by stretching than any other modality.
1: I agree with that, Ian. I cannot. Um, I agree with that. Actually, I want to, I do want to. I do want the listeners to understand. There's a way, and I know most people will see you stretch um, videos. I want to say this. There's a way to stretch the muscle and there's a way to stretch the fascia. I cannot explain it right now here. If we don't visualize it, but, I mean, if the, if the listeners are interested, I guess we can give a seminar about it. But Thai fascia can make your nervous system actually suffer. Thai fascia can also make your uh, vascular system suffer, even though your muscles are, quote, unquote, perfect, you know, normal tension, normal relaxation. If the fascia is tight, because, for example, and, and let me give you an example that happens to me, uh, you know, I stretch my muscles, right? but I really never work on the fascia initially. And when you tear your fascia, you develop these little nuts on your body, right? And these nuts are supposed to heal like they were supposed to. But if you tear your fascia, it's worse than tearing a muscle because the fascia would tend to have contracted because it wants to be stronger. And it's it's like a grab bag or a sandwich bag. You push through it. And once you stretch it, it doesn't heal properly, so you really have to work on those stretches. And, uh, and I know that people, oh, I'm going to do static stretching. I'm just going to bend over and stretch. Well, you need to use the muscles for stretching. Do not just stretch on a position, a static, dynamic, whatever, and do not force those muscles to work. Because, for example, pandiculation and that's when a cat stretches his legs forward and pushes really hard. Well, the cat the cat is stretching, but it's not stretching that most people would think, oh, look, he's pushing up, so his shoulder shoulder joint, you know, he stretches. No, what he's doing, he's contracting his pec muscle, and he strikes as, as hard as he can against the floor, and that's inducing a muscle contraction with a fascial stretch on the, oppo- on the opposite muscle. And, and that is really, really important to understand. But most people that I see, they stretch, oh, I'm going to stretch my, my shoulder, my hip, whatever. And, and I'm going to give this the biggest sample, the bicep. You can only stretch the bicep so much. Why? Because the structure of the joint stops it. Okay? And most people stretch the bicep, you know, going and pushing backwards and doing that. And of course, your joint is going to stop you. But if you contract your tricep as much as you can, and let me give you this example. I want you guys, all the listeners, you know, stand up, bring your shoulder or your arm completely extended backwards. Try right, to get it 90 degrees. And once you get to that point, stretching it or who you arm over the table and try to stretch it beyond that point, contract your tricep and tell me what happens. You absolutely are going to feel a stretch much more than you only stretch in it. And that's the fastest stretch due to the contraction of your muscles. And I don't know if you agree with that, Ian, but...
0: No, that's definitely a modality. Have you heard? Yeah, that, that's, that's definitely a modality, Eric. I, I don't get too up on the details. I just want to reverse the trend in the world because I believe that the world is headed away from stretching and i got a question for you, Eric. In your professional observations, and you've been, you've been involved for many years, is the incidence of injury increasing, decreasing, or staying the same?
1: Oh, increasing. Ian, you, you were talking about children. In my office, I see every day, every single day, a child that is hurt. I see ACL surgeries, like you say, and I also see the rehab of the therapist, and I don't want to say anything about any therapist, but, for example, ACL reconstruction, all the all the work all the work is in the quads. You know, they do like extension, they do like leg like hips, hip lift, and what they need to work is on your hamstrings actually, because the ACL is protected by the hamstrings. Yep. And people don't understand that. And you know, I, I I on my on my practice I got therapies that are amazing, you know, because I yell at them I, I go out there and try to show them, oh but in school they taught me this. When I said, well in school they also taught me this what I was it was wrong. You know, you gotta learn. And and, and you know, ACL reconstruction, and I will tell this to all the listeners, anybody has an ACL reconstruction will develop arthritis. I don't care who it is. It's just a matter of time, okay? And that's because you somebody went in there and scraped you and put a hole on your knee. You are going to develop arthritis. I don't care what you're doing. I mean, it might be small in some people. It might be a lot in other people. But you try to prevent surgeries as much as I can. I hate Surgeons, I know that I have a couple of doctors listening because they email me, and I know um, a couple of them have heard me talking to them that I absolutely refuse to try to do surgery. And actually, do you require ACL surgery? And that's another point. I have people in my office that have ACL tears, and they're strong and balanced enough that they do not require any surgery.
0: So my goal, Eric, and, and stretching is just just part. It's not the it's not the only part. It's just part of my belief that that uh, the zero tolerance attitude to stretching. I believe all injuries are preventable. All injuries are predictable. All injuries are unnecessary, and the majority of them are caused by what we do to ourselves or what we allow others to do to ourselves. Now, there's a lot of statements in there, and I know many of them would raise some um, challenged values, but the bottom line is this. If you're getting injured, if your athletes are getting injured, you need to give yourself an uppercut and ask yourself why and change it. And I say that pretty bluntly, but I'm not seeing that. I'm seeing I'm seeing, um, strength and conditioning coaches, to use that terrible word, continue on producing a litany of, of injuries. I've seen teams where there are more athletes' surgery that run on the field at any one time in any calendar year. So we've come to an acceptance of injuries, which is just unacceptable. And that's why... I, I've been I've been on this platform for quite a few decades, but I'm getting a bit more firm on this. And I'm saying to people, you know, if you want to be injured, if you want your people to be injured, don't knock yourself out. But really, you've got a responsibility to people. There's no upside to injury. There's no upside to surgery, as you've said. So stop doing it. Just stop injuring people.
1: I agree with 80% of your statement, Ian. But I get I, you know I see the people that are in motorcycles and they, they have an accident, or they break their head, or you cannot prevent those. It doesn't matter yeah, no, ta- how good. It-
0: I'm not talking about those... Yes. That,
1: I mean. I, I yeah, I know. You're talking about training. I know. I understand. So, about- but that's what I'm saying. This. Go ahead.
0: You yeah, I'm talking about sports injuries. I know what it's like to be in a motor vehicle accident, and you know, there's no. You're not going to prevent that sort of impact when you've got a one or two-ton vehicle hitting a human body. There's not much chance. But I'm talking about sporting injuries.
1: Well, you. I mean. <laughs> Again, I see a lot of football players, and like you see rugby players. Uh, can the injuries be preventable? Yes, if you have a good balance, but can all of them be preventable? It doesn't matter how good the athletes or how good the machinery is. It's going to break down if there are certain forces that are bigger than your own forces. Exactly. So, yes, 90% of the injuries can be preventable. The other 10%, you can't prevent them because, you know, there's external forces influencing that body. But I completely agree. I do see a lot of injuries caused mostly by bad training, bad technique, you know, and bad education. Let me put it that way. Know, know that the trainers intend to train the person run. is or that. They, they just become like a cult. Oh, I listen to this guy. Oh, I'm going to do everything he says. you know. And I tell everybody, you know, everybody has something to teach you. Always, if you don't know more today than you knew yesterday, then you're getting stupidier. You're getting bummer because you need to learn something new every single day. I learn every day in my office. You know, when I think I'm, I know something, here comes somebody that completely blows my mind, and I think Dr. Dr. Fossuman is listening, and, and he knows that, oh, I, I know the answer, I know the answer, and here I go. Crap, that's not the answer. So absolutely try to learn from everybody. I mean, there's good information, there's bad information, there's so-so information, and there's shitty information and the problem is that once there there's some uh, people out there the gurus okay I'm gonna call the gurus because because you know I don't, I don't publish I don't know in the internet I don't have Facebook I don't have anything God okay is because I, I I don't have time I don't have time to do that and and it's sad that I see oh I'm gonna follow this guy well no you know learn from every single person Something because everybody has something to teach you and once you develop your technique Then do not do not stay on that area try to get better every single day
0: Excellent advice, so Eric we're going to jump now if we can to the questions I just want to feel the few of the questions that we received from people
1: um, Go ahead. Let's go for it. Let's go for it.
0: We submitted them prior to so let me um, Just bring up the first question okay, so this is from Eric, and Eric, um, Eric said, hello, Ian, I saw you at Swiss, and hung out, uh, listening to you speak uh, to others after your event for about an hour, I learned a ton, I'm looking forward to this webinar, here are some questions, he said, squats or deadlift for female athletes, question mark, so he said, squats or deadlift for female athletes, so I'm going to assume that's a question, we're going to interpret that as the best we can, squats or deadlift for female athletes, Eric, your your comment.
1: Okay, Um, Eric, and I think that question is coming from Eric Hernandez. It depends what the athlete' weakness is. Okay, does he have weak back? Does he have weak quads? Um, what which sport are we talking about? I'm assuming basketball. You know, most people tend to teach the powerlifting squat version of squatting. And, and I am a, I'm a, I'm a powerlifter, so I do squat powerlifting style. But I also change it all the time. I squat one-legged, and this is one of my biggest pipi. Uh The body works unilateral all the time, you walk with one leg, you run with one leg, I do. I believe that if I have a weakness on somewhere, fix it first, then I will concentrate on, and it depends on the sport, I will do more deadlifting, actually, believe it or not, I love deadlifting, because it forces to use grip, it forces you to keep your back, and your butt down, it forces you to keep your, your back straight, you know, uh, there's less chance of getting hurt with the deadlift than the squat. But again, it depends on the weakness.
0: Excellent response. So I'm going to add to that. Um, I, I believe deadlift there's more to contribute to, to sport than squat. I also believe that most sports are quad, quad dominant. And to, in addition to that, most athletes have been trained in a quad dominant way, using the terms that are introduced in the in the, in the the 90s. And therefore, there are periods of time, especially in the early days, when I have an athlete that I will not give them any quad at all. As far as uh, the, the wide stance, powerlifting stance, I, I, I would rarely, rarely get anyone to squat wider than they're um, running at. As far as the concept raised by Eric Unilateral, that's one of the reasons I popularised you know, single leg work in, in the 90s, but I actually think it's been overemphasised. I think the, the time we spend in a unilateral position is fairly, fairly short and moved from side to side uh, fairly quickly, and I think that what we have when we spend too much time on, uh, on one leg and loaded exercises, we have uh, a various force that is yet to be fully appreciated. Uh, That's a subject for another day. So there's some feedback on that one. Uh, If Eric wanted to throw in, otherwise I'll go to his second question.
1: Okay, go for it.
0: So the second question that Eric raised uh, for our webinar today was uh, top self-care stretching, self-care recommendations given to athletes for health. So he's talking about care for health. Um, So so I'll throw that out you. Self-care stretching recommendations for athletes for health, the top ones.
1: I'm going, to, I'm, going to, I'm going to let you answer that one first. Go for it first. Well,
0: for me, the health, as far as the athlete and stretching goes, is I don't want them to be injured. So whatever level of um, stretching is is appropriate to keep them injury-free, and, and that's an individualized uh, variable. Uh, but there are many other things that we take into account as far as protecting their uh, their health. And I, I believe that it, you know begins with uh, their level of happiness, their motivation for doing the sport, the level of pressure they're experiencing. Um, you know their nutrition, their sleep—it's pretty holistic, and so it goes beyond stretching. I mean, we, it's an educational process that we put our athletes through uh, progressively, not in one hit. But basically, our goal is to educate them to to be to look after themselves absolutely, so that when they're on the road and they have issues dealing with travel, uh, different food, injuries, etc., they can look after themselves. So for me, health is health is comes before uh, injury prevention; it comes before performance. So that's my value on health over to you, Eric.
1: Okay. my I agree with you. I want to ask some stuff. Okay. For me, healthy is uh, a physiological level when you're in balance. Okay. And there's no injury. Okay. And you're happy. Now, um, if you're talking, Eric, specifically about training, the first thing I will do is there's an imbalance between one muscle and the other. Okay. And that's what I'm going to include stretching somehow, meaning is my quad tight compared to my hamstrings. Is my hands weak compared to my quad? Okay, Eric, I'll fix that first. So, the first thing I will do, I fix the weakest link or whatever is broken on that athlete, and then I move into the training. I will not train the athlete if he's hurt, or I will train on the injury so I can fix that injury first. I think that's my answer.
0: Excellent. Appreciate it, Eric. So, shooting off to his third and final question the biggest cha- cha- change in college university athletes from five, 10 years to now and the implications. So what are the biggest changes that we've seen in college and university athletes from five to ten years ago to now and the implications they have on training? Over to you Eric for that one.
1: Okay. I've got Okay, a what points. are the biggest changes I've seen? Well excuse me?
2: Yep.
1: Go ahead, Eric. Go ahead. What, one, one of the changes I've seen is strength coaches in your place right now. Okay? Now, I also seen strength coaches being um, educated sometimes by um, organizations that actually are uh, poorly controlled and I would say um, influenced by money. And sometimes they teach not the right things. And once you get to a position, they don't look back. Okay? That's one thing. Number two, I seen that Children in high schools and, you know, elementary school, they don't not teach physical education anymore, okay? And, and that is a severe, severe problem. Number three, the amount of workouts that the athletes do now are too much. And I know people are going to think I'm crazy, but I'm telling you this. Most of the books written by professionals or by people that are writing books are the ones that won the gold medal. You know, are the best baseball players that are, or the best basketball players that are genetically, actually better than the average person, and they have easy success. Let me put it that way. And I don't want to, I don't want to call that the wrong way. I just want to say, I just want to say that they got more successfully with less work than the average person. And now we go into, oh, I'm going to train, I'm going to train like the next guy, and we overwork. Overtrain almost 99% of the athletes. Yes, I'm going to say that 99% of the athletes we overtrain. I think that's one of the biggest influence right now.
0: Yeah, I, I would agree. I'm going to give you a quick, a quick story. Uh, back in the early 90s, I was working with a, an athlete in the American college system, a Div 1 a swimmer, non, non-American, and we do whatever we wanted in their dry land training. In fact, in the off season, we could do everyone in their swimming training. She so we went on to to become the, the Division One Swimmer of the Year and, and set Div 1 records, uh, NCA records, as the first non-American to do so, to my knowledge. Uh, and now I'm in a similar situation some you know 25 years later uh, with another athlete, same sport. And it, it's so tough because, as Eric said, firstly, they're being overtrained both in the pool, they're being overtrained on um, dry land. And then the training they're doing is so – I'm going to be straight. It's just so bad um, that they're wrecking the athlete. And, you know, it's – it's a miracle any of them come through. So uh, in the interest of getting other people's uh, questions, I'm going to leave it at that. So we're going to move on um, to the second question, and this is um, from Kathleen. What's your stance on stretching prior to an exercise? Um, and I think we've covered that to some extent, Eric. Did you want to add to that at all? Uh,
1: yeah, Kathleen. I, I, do I dynamically stretch? Do I statically statically stretch? It depends on what I'm doing. Uh, do I specifically stretch like I will like bend over and stretch my lower back? No, I don't. Uh, And I'm going to say this, it depends on the time you work out, age and injury. If I'm going to do legs and I have an injury on my leg, I might stretch the other parts not that leg. But let me give you an example, Kathleen. I'm going to squat, okay, and my lower back is hurting me, I stretch my hamstrings, not my quads, not my lower back, but my hamstrings, and I can squat better. I don't know if, if Ian has seen that, but I have done that. And, and I think it's very specific to each client.
0: Yeah, so in, in a t- as a broad brush answer, I'm going to say anybody who loads their joint before stretching is a fool. Uh, I, I'm very open. I'm very open for people to, to be my experiments. I learn from what everybody does. So when Ian, you're a fool and I've got my own theory, I say, fantastic. Can you please sh- keep doing it? Because I want to learn from by- <laughs> Because I'm really I'm, – I'm serious. I'm, I have, I love it. Go ahead and do something different to me, please, so I can learn. I don't want to experiment with my people, but I'd love to experiment with you and your people. Um, so, yeah, I'll <laughs>
1: Yeah,
0: I know. It's, pre, it's pretty harsh, but I'm serious. Um, and then the second question is, you know, it's recommended to do seated glute and ankle slears and hip flexion and shoulder wall slides as mobility drills prior to squatting. So she's talking about glute and ankle, slits and hip flexor and shoulder wall slides. I'm not sure whether she meant stretching and then some Some what I call, and I introduced this concept of control drills before loading. I introduced that first published in 1998. I'd been doing it for nearly a decade prior to that. Now people call it all, all different wonderful things. But, Eric, if you understand that
1: question. Uh, you know what? I don't know what she – I'm assuming if we're going to do squats, then do we stretch the ankle and – and hmm, no, I don't know the – I don't know what she meant by that. I don't understand it.
0: Okay, well, I'm going to answer that. And then, uh, if if it's specific to squatting, I think ankle stretching is absolutely critical, you know, both uh, tib-, tib anterior and, and as far as uh, the, the back of the joint. Um, you know, I, I just put it in a nutshell, if I'm with a professional athlete, we do a lower body workout. We'll we'll stretch between, between 45 minutes and an hour and a half um, on average before a, a, a lower body workout. So that's a, a quick answer to that one. I'm going to move on now to the third question here, Eric. Um, What's been the big, biggest challenges, biggest changes you've seen in the way people train during your lifetime? And I think we've addressed that to some extent, Eric. If you, know, you want to add anything to that,
1: uh, you, you know what? I yes. And the the biggest change that I've seen is the amount of education that you can get now through the internet. You know, anybody can anybody can say that they're a trainer just by taking a course right now. Sit down and train people. You know. It's a huge, massive change that I've seen that way. Now everybody can be a trainer, and that scares me. Yeah, and I'm going to agree with that because you
0: know, back 30, 40 years ago, and I say when Reg Park wanted to learn how to train, information was hard to find, but it was really good when you found it. Now information's easy to find, and it's really bad when you find it.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: So I actually, I'm really, I'm really um, a little bit, uh, if I can use the word of emotion. Apparently I don't have any, but if I can use the word, I'm a little bit sad for people because the chances are nine out of ten they're going to come across crap and train crappily and by the time they work it out, you know, we've got a challenge of unraveling the crap that they've been doing. So I would really, Eric, I would have probably preferred the day when I picked up. It was hard to find, but when I got that book, you know, when I got that book written by um, Bill Casma or something like that, I, I could see Bill knew what he was doing, uh, as opposed to the, the 90% of the rubbish that's on the market now.
1: Uh, I agree with you, absolutely. Now we have the guy squatting on a Swiss ball or <laughs> all that bullshit, and I'm like, dude, yeah, let me. Let, why why I just don't hit you with a freaking hammer, you moron? You know, you know but that's okay.
0: People think we're joking with this. I've had people in the seminar, a woman said to me, you know, I've got an ACL reconstruction. I so said, how do you do it? I was, do, I was doing jumps off my squats off a Swiss ball. Anyway, so it does happen. It, it really is. The world is a tragedy. <laughs> Are getting dumber, and, and they're they yes. you know they just not thinking, and, and and that's what um you know Albert Schweitzer said to the to, in a media conference and said, Doctor, what's a, what's man's greatest challenge? Do you, you think? What's, he said? Man does not think, and that was in 1952. So nothing's changed. It's only got worse. So the second question: What do you think is the most important physical quality, and why? And I'm going to throw that one to you, Eric. What do you think is the most phys- ph- important physical quality, and why?
1: What is the most important physical quality? Woof, if I have to, I, I, they're not gonna like this answer. This answer, um, and I'm gonna say your freaking brain. <laughs> if you don't use your brain, that doesn't matter what you do with your body. I mean, the best example I can give you: look at a bodybuilder. They think they look good, and 90% of them no brains, you know. And, and I, my, the biggest physical quality I think you gotta think. And it doesn't matter what kind of athlete you are, if you don't think, you don't go nowhere.
0: Yeah, great, great answer, and so important. And, and, and when I when I hear people talk, and when I see what they write, the first question I ask myself is, I ask myself, is is that really their opinion based upon their own personal experiences, or is that an opinion being echoed by the influences of other people? And one of the greatest challenges I see for those who have come into the industry post 2000, in that era of bullshit and decade, uh, the decade of deceit, was can they empty their mind from that crap? Can they really um, learn to think for themselves or are they just gonna go on to someone else's paradigm? So it's just jumping from one, one strong dominant belief to another strong dominant belief. But that's just a question I've got. So what I'm gonna do now is before we um, go to the final person who submitted the question, I'm opening the floor. This is the opportunity for anybody on the call today. Now there's an electronic button to put your hand up. If we have a hand up, we'll take you on, put you on live. Um, we'll have your question uh, posed by yourself verbally. And if, if you're one of the persons whose questions we've addressed and you are on the call and you want clarification on that You can certainly do the same thing. So I'm just looking for hands up and that is go a go for a, it go Electronic hands up. We got Justin Justin was the first to move. So we're going to Justin. Hey, Justin. How's it going?
2: Doing great Ian and dr. Srona. How are you guys good? Call me Eric <laughs> You got it. I wanted to uh, just ask you because you, you talked about some of the trends that you saw in, uh, in, in the strength industry that have changed um, I guess my question is because you have both been in the industry for uh, decades what trends have you seen in the health aspect of the athletes now that these people are actually 20 30 years older after they're retired um, you know we deal with a lot of young kids today and uh, to deal with an ACL surgery or uh, a, a, any sort of yeah. orthopedic intervention that makes a big traumatic inju- issue. But if we're having, you know, all these protein shakes and all these supplements and all, a lot of exercises that are inducing injuries when they're 20 years old, what's happening to these people that we see when they're 45 is, and 50? This is one of
0: my favorite topics because I'm, I'm almost on a third-generation client. Uh, and I'm serious. I've on, I've, I'm on a second-generation coach. like so two generations of coaches I work with. And I'm on a second-generation athlete, and I'm heading towards third. Um, this is what used to happen in the 1980s, especially in Australia, and I think in the 70s in America. Most athletes didn't get exposed to dry land training until they were in their in about 20 years of age, and their bodies lasted about another eight years. So they got to about 28 years of age, their bodies were wrecked both from the sport, from their dry land, and everyone thought that well, that's normal. It's just it's that age. And That was okay. Now, athletes are getting exposed at the age of 12 with the same amount of same type and amount or even more training than they were some decades ago at the age of 20. So, by the time the athlete is 20 years old, now the majority of athletes will have had surgery and the majority of them will have had to quit their sport because they're either burnout or because um, they can't play the sport anymore. So, what we've done is we have in, in, in life expectancy since the 80s and maybe, you know, it, it creates five years. What we've done is we've, we've consigned a whole generation of athletes to living hell. And I'm being, I'm being slightly melodramatic, but I'm not too far off the pace. We're, con, we're consigning them to a, a living hell in between the ages of 40 and 80. They will have a quality of life that the pharmaceutical agencies will tell you they'll, they'll be able to solve with, with painkillers and joint replacements. But I don't think it's that simple. So we are, we're creating a new wave of, of diabetes. Like no one wanted to talk about diabetes 30 years ago. Now everyone understands it's an epidemic affecting children and, and that, you know, getting young kids, getting stuff that adults used to get. But the bottom line is, it is a major issue, Justin. It's an industry in itself. And I don't really want to see people going around and just, just meeting the, the needs because that's addressing the symptom. I'd rather attack the cause and say, listen, this can be done differently. The only thing I'm seeing done in America is the anti, anti-over-early specialization movement. I mean, that's nice, but it's not enough, and it's not the main reason. So uh, this is actually a pretty big thing for me, just because I know what it's like to rehabilitate an anterior cruciate reconstruction for 30 years. And, and once you've had that experience, uh, and that's personally amongst the hundreds of thousands that I've done professionally. You know personally what life can be like when you, you know, when you get up in, during the night or get up in the morning and you, and you judge your day by how the joint feels the minute you load it. So we've got some major issues, and you know, I had a, I had a neighbor down here recently, and, and the kid had an ACL at 14, and for me, that's that's amazingly early. And the parents seemed okay because the doctors had told them it'll be okay because it's stronger than ever before. It'll be stronger than it was ever before. Nobody sat them down and said, listen, statistically 50% you'll have another in- surgery and 100% you're going to have arthritis. Like Nobody's telling the truth. And that's what I like about Eric. And that's what I think you understand, Justin. That, uh, so I'm pretty passionate on that one. Uh, Eric, you want anything to add to that?
1: Yeah, Justin, I'm going to give you two live samples. My daughter was a top-level uh, gymnastics and she went to the university and actually she went to practice with the team okay and she made the team but then they did an MRI of her back and she has something a condition called a spondylolisthesis when the when one of the vertebrae or the one of the columns on the spine move forward and the guy wasn't going to let her do it unless they got an MRI and I said you know what I don't want the MRI, leave it alone, don't worry about it I talked to the trainer and when I talked to the trainer, uh, the trainer, oh, i got to take them swimming. They're going to go swimming. This is gymnastics, right? They're going to go swimming for two hours. And I go, what? Swimming for two hours? What are you talking about? Yes. And then when I talked to him, out of the 18 athletes that they have, there were six seniors. A hundred percent of them had ACL surgery or a back surgery or, or some kind of surgery. And, and he was pretty proud of it that they were coming back from surgery. I'm like, dude, you watch out, why are they going to surgery, the first question. Okay, he was a moron, but I didn't say anything. I told my daughter, sorry, I cannot let you turn with this guy. He's over. Another example I'm going to tell you, I work with a lot of football players, actually entire teams, and one of the biggest jokes is we went, I don't hunt, I don't like to shoot animals. I prefer to shoot a human, actually, but that's another point. And, and here we are, an entire line, like 22 men, we were eating dinner, right? And they were, oh, pass me the ibuprofen. Oh yeah, I want two. I want four. There's 22 guys sitting on the table. I'm the oldest guy, and every single one of them is taking ibuprofen. And these guys are, on I say, on the top of their career. under are 26, 28 years old. All of them with, you know, aches and pains. And, and I don't want to, I don't want to wish that. I don't care how much money you make. I don't want to wish that to anybody. Is it because of the wrong training? Is it because of the wrong diet? You know, it doesn't matter, but I've seen it. And it's unbelievable the amount of injuries that are happening. And, again, what is the right answer? I don't have the answer, but I know that good training, good diet, makes a huge difference.
0: Excellent. I appreciate Eric, and I trust Eric, uh, Justin we've answered that.
2: Justin? Absolutely. Yeah. I really appreciate it. Thank you. So in summary, mm-hmm. we're,
0: we're looking for people like you, Justin, to contribute to this movement, You know, the, the movement that we'd like to reverse the direction of the world's going in this regard. So we have got a man that we have to say thank you for his contribution to the industry and his efforts specifically more recently, last month in Toronto, Ken Kanakin. Ken, welcome to the call.
1: Oh my God, Ken is an amazing person. I hope that you know nobody can live forever, but if I could do, be a magician, I will make that guy... I will put my magic wand on him and say, you got to live forever. He did an amazing job this year.
3: Again. Thank you, guys. Thank you.
1: Candy. Um, hey, I- before you ask a question, I want to tell the listeners, I've been to many sports medicine conferences in my lifetime, I would say over 20, and I lecture in almost all of them. And, I, and whoever is listening, if you do not go to the Swiss, you have not been in a sports medicine conference.
3: Thank you. actually, um I just want to announce uh, here that uh, I just talked to the hotel, and uh, the next uh, I took your advice, Eric. And right. so I'm gonna run Swiss next year, and both uh, yourself and Ian. I hope both of you can come out again. It will be October thirteenth to the fifteenth, two thousand and sixteen same hotel. Uh, same experience, and we've uh, the focus will be on the low back. And I just got confirmation at eight o'clock this morning that Dr. Stu McGill is going to be presenting, and uh, on the low back. And uh, the and the opening will be we're going to find someone that can deadlift eight or nine hundred pounds uh, <laughs> for the opening uh, presentation. Hopefully, we can uh, hook up surface EMG on them also. I I guess the one question I have for both of you especially since you have both been in the industry so long is how can we make the biggest impact uh, on people is it uh, through e-books is it through physical books is it through video is it through audio or just a live presentation I guess that's my challenge is that each one has their own strengths and weaknesses but what have you guys found to be the most impactful but also the most efficient
1: Oh, Ian, I'm going to let you be the first one on that one because you have used all the ways, internet, TV, you know, all that. I only use one way, so I want to hear what you have to say.
0: Yes. Yeah, so I, I agree. I started attending events in, in America in 1989, uh, and I, I came across, and I'm going to tell you a quick story. I came across, and I, I traveled throughout America a number of times during 89 to, to meet everybody who I'd heard about and to learn as much as I could. And as I attended some of the major uh, annual professional development events in America from then onwards, and, and obviously I've been to them in Australia during the 80s, one thing that really stood out to me was that when someone would go to one of those events, they'd all come back really influenced by what they'd been exposed to, and they'd come back and they'd change the way they train. Now, admittedly, that was pre-information age, and I, I understand that we've got a new, new, uh, new paradigm there, with the, but I, I still believe that the, imp- the ability to impact at an event is quite substantial. In the same way that I think if people want to create a trend, they do it in New York first, for example. They do it in some of the epicenters of change, and it ripples outwards. So I do believe that the event in itself still maintains a significant a contributor to, to change in values, change in behaviours. And having said that, I, I had, had to sit down with a, a former athlete who I worked with in, in the, prior to going across to American 1 College and then to the Olympics, and she's now an internet marketing guru, and she's very pro-internet. So we had an interesting debate there. I, I think you need to combine the both, but I, I think the value of the the in-person annual event, I think it's underestimated in the information world, and it's just a matter of tying the two of them together. Over to you, Eric. Yeah. But I, I'd also like to think, Ken, and this is just my opinion, I'd also like to think that we, we're through the worst of the bullshit in terms of the period between 2000 and 2010?
1: Well. Uh, I can, I think the best, for me, I, I am a... Um, I, I, I...
0: Go ahead, Eric. Ian, Yeah, go
1: ahead,
3: Eric, we're still good. Can you hear me? Yes. Hello? I think he's he- talking too quick. <laughs>
1: Oh, Ian, yeah, no, I lost you for a second. Listen, I think that the way, Ken, that you're doing it, yes, now, uh, I think, Ken, the way you're doing it has influenced me more than any book. I mean, I can read a book, but if I don't see the person speaking and I have direct contact with that person, I might deviate to somebody else because I think live presentations are still the number one way to learn. I have learned more. In one lecture that I sometimes that I can learn in one book. I don't know if Ian agrees with me, but I have done that.
0: Yeah, that's 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 my position on that as well, Eric.
3: Yeah, yeah, Eric, I would agree. And what I found was that it's yeah, and it's not even just um, uh, talking or listening to a presenter, but actually uh, interacting with them in the hallway. or in the restaurant or else that's where the true information comes out and that's what like even at the last with symposium listening to people was was good on stage But when I get to ask them direct questions in the hallway you know whether it be with Karim Dehany or Ian when I chatted with you you know in the restaurant and same thing with yourself you know Eric you, you get the information and it's just at such a high level you know, and and it's not, you know, the the information that is generic, but it's very specific. I, I completely agree with you, Ken. And I, I and of, the interaction. Now, when you get two or three or four different presenters that are all at the same time, that's where the magic happens. So it looks like
0: we're on the same page with that, Ken, and I agree. Uh, and I think the people who hung around after the event and spoke to the speaker and ask the questions that related to themselves, I think they got massive value that they just weren't going to get anywhere else. I think the reward for them was, as you said, meeting the person and being able to ask the questions that related to themselves. I know we've got a few people on the call. I know Justin. uh, Justin, you want to just comment on that because I know Justin spent probably the best part of an hour with me immediately after the presentation. Justin? I'm still here. Just looking for your feedback for Ken like, as, as a, an
2: attendee of Swiss. Yeah, Ian, You're oh, wow. cutting in and out a little bit, so I don't really, I didn't really hear what you said. I did see you unmuted me, but uh, I can attest. Oh man, I, you know, Swiss was fantastic. I mean, I, I, uh, the minute he said that he was doing it again, it was like this, like almost like, ten year reunion for me. Um, you know, to where I. I was there before and didn't really get the chance to meet a lot of people. part of the fact that when I was there before I was nervous and I was a younger coach to now I um, had a chance to talk with Eric, I talked to Ian, and I, I got to talk to Ken as well. It was fantastic. To me, it's it's not just so much the presentation, which yeah. was absolutely phenomenal, but it's also the attendees. I mean, There was more knowledge yeah. in the chairs than there was on stage that people were aware of. And a lot of people don't take advantage of that because they're shy, they're uh, or they're they're so caught up in reading the books that they're not willing to open their mind and listen to the person that's instructing. Um, you know the candidness, the the fact that uh, you know Eric Trono is able to go up there and say, "Look, this is what's working for me in my practice that I see every single day. Um, I can address those issues and." you know I could also maybe help you and just ask the questions the fact that someone's you're you're getting free advice you know that people pay thousands and thousands of dollars for to make those mistakes a hundred thousand times and figure out what's working to me that was a huge benefit um, I thought you just was a first class I mean, if there's any way I could sum up the event for anybody it was absolutely first class um, you know to me you know Ian, you, you spent a lot of time with me and my team. Uh, my guys, I, I had to listen to them in my ear driving back, you know, eight, nine hours just how much they just enjoyed the honesty and the very transparency of a coach, somebody who is out there doing their job. Uh, co- you know you coach every day because of the way that you, you know, we're talking to people individually. Um, and then in regards to the what's the best way to educate the population, because I think as a coach we have a responsibility to put, leave a footmark somewhere. Um, I don't know if it's e-books. I don't know if it's videos. I do know that in-person and live events make a big impact purely from the standpoint of trust. You can look somebody in the eye, you can talk to them, and you get to know if they're either full of shit or not. And then on the <laughs> other side is, you know, on the, excuse me, you don't know that until someone puts their hands on you, talks to you, shakes your hand, looks in the eye. And the last thing I'll say is this, that the, one of the reasons why um, – you know, the market is so saturated on the marketing side is because those people that are doing it are not actually the ones marketing. The people that are marketing are not actually the people that are coaching. and It may be unfortunate to the way that the industry is, but at the same point I think that as educators we have a responsibility not to the small market that we have and we service in person, but that the people that we could leave a footprint for long term. So I appreciate Ken the work because I know what goes into an event and the one that you put on to that magnitude and get that many people in flying from all over the world uh, I don't know what it was like from a speaker standpoint but the way that you treated myself and our team was absolutely first class
1: I will say amen to that it was absolutely I want to say this Kim even flew my daughter there and she had a great time she said you know it's kind of funny oh my god Dad, Ian is so serious. I was so scared to talk to him. <laughs> and I told him, "Just go talk to the old man. Don't worry about it." said, like, "No, no, Dad, he scares me." And I gotta, <laughs> tell, I gotta tell that to him. But then he, she loved him because he was Ian giving her a book. And said, "Oh my God, he was so nice, Dad." And I, I, I can tell you this: that was the best Swiss I've been. I, I sat down for. I remember one night, me and uh, Ian and J. L., the big bullheaded powerlifter, yeah, you know yeah. that that was asking questions to Ian. I mean, he's a great coach, actually. He's a patient of mine and a true friend. You know, he said, oh, my God, I love talking to this guy. You know, what, what's going on? Uh, you know, John Berardi, I spent an hour, a good hour with him at night. Kathleen was there, and he was a, he's absolutely a, it's a Class A, you know, event. Whoever doesn't go to that at least once in a lifetime is missing. you got to go to see the Swiss conference.
3: Oh, thank you, guys. Yeah, I'm – I'm going to do it again. This one took two years to do. Um, This one will take shorter time just because I uh, know how to do it again and it will be in the same event. The interesting thing is the hotel allowed people to kind of bump into each other, so you had no choice but to bump into Kaz and take a picture and talk to him about training or Donnie Thompson or Ian or Eric and all of you were so available, and I really, really want to thank you for that.
1: I'll be there, by the way.
3: Okay, uh, Ian, you're going to
0: come out again. Well, without a doubt, Eric, I appreciate, it, and we really appreciate what you do. Thank Hello, you.
3: Ian, are you there?
0: Yep, I'm here. Can you hear me?
3: He may have left. <laughs> I I think he.
0: Yeah, Eric, we're good. Can you hear me?
3: Thank you. Oh. No, no, it's 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 a real passion, and uh, it's uh, it, 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 it's just so much fun.
2: Yeah, I can yep. hear you.
0: Actually, we appreciate Ken. Definitely. Hello, Ian. We will be there, Ken.
1: Ian, I hope you can hear me. I hope that uh, you know. I, I I wanted to ask the listeners: Do they want to make this a a, mo- a Ian, do you want to make this a monthly event in which people, if they're interested, they can send you questions, and we, you and I, get together and answer questions.
0: Absolutely, we can do that, Ken and Eric. Sorry, absolutely. If you, hopefully, you can hear me. Mm-hmm. Eric,
1: you can hear me? Ian, are you still there?
0: M- Mitchell, can you answer my behalf? They're not hearing me.
3: Eric, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. Eric, uh, Ian said he'll definitely do that. That's a great So if they can't hear me...
1: We'll do that every month.
0: We're just having some audio challenge with the internet. My apologies. Um, But, yes, let's do it monthly. Eric?
1: Yes, absolutely. I will do it monthly. We can do it, like you said, every month. If you want to, people can send you questions or just opening to people's questions. I want to say this. I just accepted I'm going to give a conference in Ireland, July the 22nd to the 25th. I'll be there. So it's a little closer than the Swiss but the Swiss still the number one place but I'd be there with Owen and, and I don't know if he's listening but I'd be there with them in Ireland
0: fantastic so we'll get some uh, get some other people great people like Ken to come and join our call as well um, we get dialectlette JL- yeah I, will, I
1: would love to do that I, I would like to include Ken if he's if he, if he wishes to be available that'd be amazing
0: and some of the other speakers uh, some of our other other people we bumped into at the event uh, last year and, and next year forward. So that's the plan, uh, and we really appreciate having Ken on. I trust my audio is still clear. And if there were any final questions, any final comment, you could put your hand up electronically speaking. And if not, we will wrap today's call. And again, uh, I want to thank my good friend, Eric Serrano. He's a phenomenal friend, a phenomenal practitioner. And we need the world needs more of them, and also our surprise guest Ken Kanaken, we, we've we've said already what we think of Ken's contribution and the phenomenal event. And we look forward to everybody on the call and everybody you know being encouraged to attend the Swiss event 2016. I want to thank each of you that are on the call today, receiving the opportunity of going live with Eric and myself and and Ken, and look forward to you sharing this. Uh, Recording, we will put the recording up on uh, on some platform, on a Facebook page or something, and you can share this recording, and we will let you know when the next event is. Um, we'll go monthly, and we'll, we'll make it happen from there. So thanks, everybody, for being part of today's call, and to my good friends, Eric and Ken. Appreciate, look forward to meeting you
1: again in person. Thank you, and it was nice talking to you guys. Bye-bye.
3: Thank you. Bye-bye.